this is what I studied and this is what I trained for. And, and certainly I'm always worried about it. Um, but we never expected something of this magnitude to really arrive. And so I would say that it's perhaps the most challenging moment for healthcare in our generation, but it's also been uh, in many ways healthcare's finest hour. Welcome to MIT Catalysts, a podcast by the MIT Club of Northern California. You're listening to the third episode in a special series about MIT alumni on the front lines of fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode is an edited version of a recent webinar that host Julia Yu did with Dr. Sudeb Delai, MIT class of 2002. In their conversation, Julia and Sudeb talk about how his interdisciplinary training uniquely prepared him for the pandemic on multiple fronts, how his day job is affecting his personal life, and the changes he's looking forward to seeing as we all adjust to a new normal. Dr. Delai is an infectious disease physician, virologist, and epidemiologist at Stanford University School of Medicine and Palo Alto Medical Foundation. He is also a medical director of Carius, an infectious disease diagnostics company. We are grateful to have you with us here today. Uh, Julia, thank you um, so much for having me, and I appreciate that warm introduction. Um, just to tell you all a little about myself, I came to Stanford for medical school, and in the middle of that did my PhD in epidemiology jointly with uh, UC Berkeley School of Public Health, where I focused on virology, mainly in HIV. So currently I wear several hats. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm an infectious disease physician at Stanford Hospital and Palo Alto Medical Foundation, where I see both hospitalized patients and critically ill patients, uh, COVID and non-COVID, and I have an outpatient clinical practice in infectious disease. Uh, I'm on the faculty at Stanford School of Medicine, where I teach courses in epidemiology and genomics and virology and public health. Uh, and as you mentioned, I'm also medical director at a Series B startup company here in Silicon Valley, uh, which develops innovative diagnostics for infectious diseases. You're in a unique position as you've studied these infectious diseases, and now we are living in a real-life pandemic. How is it wearing all of these hats and seeing the pandemic unravel today? I would say that... The two personalities there, so epidemiologist and infectious disease physician, um, were not, they're not so much like Jekyll and Hyde. They're not so much in opposition, but they're more kind of like husband and wife, I would say. So the epidemiologist in me was, was absolutely terrified, to be frank, um, sounding the alarm bells like everyone else very early on in this pandemic um, when we heard about it in November and we started seeing an explosion of exponential growth in cases in December overseas. Uh, because we study and observe epidemics all the time, and all the numbers available were telling us that no matter which model we used very early on, this would be a horrifying pandemic, and hundreds of thousands of people would die, and hospitals would be overwhelmed fairly quickly. That we knew very early on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the physician in me actually knew that we could handle the patients as long as we had staffing and beds and equipment. Um, this is not a particularly complicated illness to deal with, um, although the lack of natural human immunity and lack of any treatments were concerning and, and somewhat discouraging. But nonetheless, we've seen much worse infections. And my sickest patients throughout this uh, unfolding of the global pandemic 
uh, in the hospital are, are still uh, largely my non-coronavirus cases. Um, I will say, however, that this illness is quite unique um, in the sheer length of time that it lasts, uh, both people who are quarantined at home as well as people who are in the hospital who stay for three, four weeks, maybe even longer in the ICU. Um, th- and that's relative to the respiratory virus infection. So um, I will say that being in that unique position also equipped me to be a resource uh, and to serve in a variety of settings. Uh, And uh, there was a lot of outreach, certainly from uh, public health institutions in our area early on, the two institutions that I belong to medically, as well as patients and and other doctors. And so, uh, you know, my phone battery is dead by the middle of the day. And it's a new, it's a brand new iPhone, actually. So it just sort of rings, uh, and I get messages quite commonly throughout the day. Uh, So I, I helped hospitals here develop protocols for accepting and managing patients as soon as they walk in the door, uh, develop outdoor testing sites, and we raised you know, tent and drive-through testing sites at both institutions uh, to build surge capacity. That's largely my epidemiology role. Uh, and uh, then there was the drug sourcing and management of individual patients, and I helped develop algorithms to triage and, and treat patients in the hospital. And I'm actually a co-investigator uh, for Stanford a trial of remdesivir, and I'm sure many people have heard of that drug, uh, which started from the very beginning of the pandemic here. Uh, and that was more of the infectious disease physician in me. And, and then there's the volume of phone calls that I mentioned Um, And I consider that an important public service because there's a lot of anxiety, certainly, about this pandemic. And there are a lot of answers that that I hope to provide to um, other individuals who are worried about their own patients. So so you're right. This is this is what I studied and this is what I trained for. And and certainly I'm always worried about it. um, But we never expected something that this magnitude to really arrive. And so I would say that it's perhaps the most challenging moment for healthcare in our generation, but it's also been uh, in many ways healthcare's finest hour. How do you think that we collectively as a nation could have done testing differently? I, I think what we learned and what we already knew uh, is that industry innovation and scalability, uh, the ability to rapidly develop and distribute diagnostic tests, that capability far exceeds what public institutions, including the federal government, but also including universities, are able to provide. That's really just the math and the numbers, the billions of dollars that industry has uh, to put weight behind these kinds of measures uh, or connectedness with the general population in the form of of, um, private labs uh, that uh, are are, are highly connected uh, with, uh, with patients and also quite frankly, the agility of of private institutions to pivot and rapidly switch to developing a new test based on technology they developed for old tests. So federal investment in um, and and also incentivization of these efforts uh, will, you know, by default, I think, enable uh, coordination when it's needed. Uh, So we'll be better prepared next time. I hope. But that partnership needs to be prioritized. And that starts with recognition of diseases that may not be present uh, or expensive at the moment, uh, but have the potential to be devastating. And this is these kinds of situations. I I really think we should have disaster preparedness because that's the mentality that uh, it would take to, to make these kinds of investments for things that could potentially materialize. There was a lot of talk, especially in regards to testing, of South Korea having been very proactive. Uh, Do you think there's lessons we could take from other governments? There are certainly models of distancing and isolation and um, mobility control 
in many other countries that we can learn from, but at the same time acknowledging that many of those societies are more autocratic than ours, and we certainly value personal freedoms uh, and the lack of autocracy in a way in, in this country. And so there's a balance there. I think that early on, um, there were many statements by those countries acknowledging what the, um, what the potential scale uh, and threat and disease uh, expansiveness uh, could be in, in their countries. And, and there were fairly early lockdowns that took place. And I think epidemiologically, that is the most effective uh, intervention that we could possibly provide. Uh, it, wh- one of the ideas that became apparent very early on is that we can no longer contain the pandemic. And so containment was no longer an option. We uh, were switching to a mitigation mode. And it was very clear early on, before the pandemic even reached our country, that mitigation was going to have to be the strategy because it, a virus that's this transmissible, with this high of a fatality rate, uh, with of um, a, a, a respiratory nature, probably can't be contained, given the scale of the numbers we are looking at overseas. So one of the lessons is that mitigation, I think early on, probably should have been the priority and the rule, not the exception that we pivoted to later on. And the second thing I would say is that those countries uh, had learned from SARS uh, where, where they were directly affected. And that built, that mentality, I think, built into their capacity um, a recognition of, of resources to, to apply toward these pandemics, and particularly the ability to scale up medical institutions very rapidly and, um, and raise uh, new medical capacity. That was, I think, another lesson from the response, is the raising of hospitals that could house tens of thousands of cases is something that we should be more nimble at being able to accomplish, and I think that we've learned that lesson as well. Speaking of capacity, I want to talk about flattening the curve. This concept has been introduced to mainstream and is pretty widespread and widely understood, but this is a very specific epidemiologic term. Can you explain to us how this has become mainstream? I have to say that it was quite encouraging to me that that concept caught on amongst the general population and has been talked about uh, now for uh, several months. So as epidemiologists, we, we are always talking about epidemic curves and the peaks of these curves and when we expect epidemics to peak and the ways to manipulate or to modify these curves by influencing uh, transmission events. So we talk about flattening the curve, you know, back as far as epidemiology 101. It's, it's certainly a concept that is really easy um, for MIT alums to understand uh, because the, the math is quite straightforward. But I never once thought that it would become a term that's commonly used uh, among the general public and it's advertised now and it's tweeted about and glamorized and that society would quite frankly embrace. And so all of a sudden, epidemiology as a field and as a science has um, quite frankly become sexy. Everybody's talking about PPE, and uh, Tony Fauci has been thrust into the limelight as the doctor of the nation. It's, it's not the Surgeon General, it's not Sanjay Gupta, it's Tony Fauci that's really the face uh, of, of this pandemic in our, in our response. And that is despite the fact that he's been in the same position as director uh, at, uh, of that institute at NIH, uh, of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's been director since 1984. So as an epidemiologist myself who teaches these concepts, 
year after year to undergraduates. I'm uh, quite encouraged that these have now come to the forefront of national dialogue. I certainly wish it had been under different circumstances, but now that we understand these concepts and, and that we've seen that implementation of these concepts on wide scales can affect um, really the scale and the unfolding of pandemics, we will be able to save tens of thousands of lives, I feel, each year if the public understands these concepts and exercises them during respiratory virus season. You know, it's very interesting, but not unexpected that as we've seen the flattening of the curve in this pandemic, we've seen flattening of curves in all the other pandemics we expect this time of year. So flu season um, petered out very early on. All of the other respiratory viruses that co-circulate in this time period also went away. And quite frankly, other infections that circulate in the hospital um, also were largely mitigated. That's partly due to hospitals having less um, patients in the hospital, less, less elective procedures, so there are less people that are there. But certainly there's been a lot more hand hygiene and a lot more caution regarding transmission and a lot more patients that when they come into the hospital do not have the respiratory illnesses that we would expect in the numbers at, at this time. So I do think that the distancing and flattening the curve has, has been embraced and it's been, been beneficial and it's not going to go away anytime soon. And I, I find that highly positive. And moving on to another term, PPE. There's been a lot of press and hype around how to maximize PPE. But on the flip side, there hasn't been as much discussion on how to increase the efficiency and minimize the use of PPE. Can you tell us a little bit more about your perspective on how uh, technology has been used? Absolutely. Um, I'm glad you asked that question. You know, everyone has heard about and knows about the PPE shortages, um, and, and, and we certainly experienced that as well, although the, the risks to us as we were evaluating patients at the time this was happening was, was um, concerning and frankly it was an unfair when, when it happened. And we quickly found ways, as you mentioned, to conserve PPE and, and reduce our risk of exposures. So, you know, I, I will mention personally it was uh, of concern to me. You know, I, I'm in a dual physician household. We have an 11-month-old baby at home. And so it was always the thing at the top of my mind when um, I was in a room with a coronavirus-infected um, patient. You certainly placed a lot of trust in PPE in the patient evaluation, and, and you're relying um, uh, on, on that trust, and, and you're relying on it to get you through and, and to avoid getting infected. So um, what we ended up doing um, was fitting each room, um, actually COVID and non-COVID, um, with an iPad, which was on a mobile arm. And so for patients who didn't need a direct face-to-face -face evaluation from the physician or from myself, we would call into the room, actually via Zoom, uh, from outside on a console, uh, and we would discuss a patient's symptoms, their progress, and their plan. And so we minimized foot traffic and, and exposure, and we were able to conserve masks and, and PPE. And I would say that, that certainly we were stretched thin regarding the number of masks. You know, on an average day at Stanford Hospital, we use 1,095 masks or more, and that's on an average day. And so now we were um, using um, up to tens of thousands of masks per day because of the volume of, of patients that would need to be seen frequently by multiple providers. Um, I would say that um, a related area where we leveraged technology quite rapidly uh, was telemedicine, uh, which um, for, for, for some reasons which are um, 
a little outside of the scope of my understanding, that was extremely slow to become commonplace prior to this pandemic. Um, and it was only being used in a few places in very limited um, ways. And so each time I would ask my own health system, you know, why are we not doing telemedicine visits? Um, there wasn't really a straightforward answer. And now in the midst of a pandemic where there are real concerns about exposure and the desire to not have patients come into clinic, uh, but at the same time, a need to continue to manage their medical conditions, which have not gone away. Um, we need to continue providing high quality care and keep the system functioning despite the pandemic. And so all the major health systems very quickly provided um, and enabled video visits through various channels, through the electronic medical record, through Zoom, through WebEx, through Doximity. A FaceTime visits all of a sudden became acceptable with your patients and there were relaxed rules about privacy violations. And so now it's extremely easy to do a video visit with any patient at any time. And I have five or six platforms that I can use for any patient. And so these are not obviously miracles or, or huge feats of technology, but it has ushered in uh, a new era of, of telemedicine and the ability to avoid exposure and guide patients and, and help them avoid exposure as well, which is a huge advantage for providers and for patients both. And do you think these behaviors are going to stick? Do you think telemedicine is our future and this was, in a way, an inconvenient forcing function to get us there? I, I do actually think that it's here to stay, and, and I'm encouraged by that. Um, I think it's been uh, a long time coming, and the feedback that I've certainly received from my own patients as well as other providers is that it has made medical care um, much more convenient in many ways. And certainly there are a, a large fraction of patients who have challenges coming into clinic for physical reasons or distance reasons. Uh, there are also a number of patients who um, are, are so distant that they, they can't come in to be seen in a timely fashion, whereas a televideo visit um, can, can actually gain a lot of ground for those patients. And in, in my own infectious disease clinic, one of the large issues that I face is that patients who uh, wait a long time to see me come in after a month of their illness continuing to progress. And uh, enabling a televideo visit uh, to get ahead of that problem very early on, I think could save a lot of morbidity, certainly mortality, a lot of complications of the challenges that they have with their illness. And so I do think that a lot of providers have recognized that. And while it was forced upon us in a very haphazard fashion, and there will certainly need to be restrictions and um, reining in of, um, of HIPAA and other privacy violations to make sure that we're doing it in a straightforward and um, orchestrated fashion, I do think that it's here to stay. And quite frankly, I think that it's advantageous for a number of ways. The interesting thing about billing is that um, insurance providers have also relaxed their restrictions and they reimburse for televideo visits uh, quite similarly to an in-office visit, which has largely been a, a, a breakthrough, I feel. And that's I think, supports uh, the current notion of telemedicine as here to stay in healthcare now that we certainly have payers that are willing to support it as well. And certainly it seems like a lot of the regulations and red tape that's been around all of these things that were impediments before are starting to be reevaluated, which hopefully is good news. You mentioned that you and your wife are both physicians and in medicine. Uh, how, how are you guys doing? How, how are you guys managing that? Thank you for, for asking that question. In, in many ways, there was certainly an understanding, you know, my wife being a physician herself, that this was, um, this was 
the moment for infectious disease physicians. And there's certainly a lot of support um, for me to be involved in any way that I could regarding this effort, including seeing my patients uh, on my own in the hospital, which, as um, you alluded to, places ev everyone at risk. And there was certainly an understanding in the household that this is something that um, was my calling to bring me into medicine in the first place, and certainly my calling as an infectious disease physician. You know, this, this is an infectious disease. This is certainly something where I have value uh, and felt compelled to add that value in as many ways as I could. So we certainly developed um, a home protocol for me to be as safe as possible uh, when I am attending at the hospital. And that involves um, having um, my own vehicle that no one else drives to the hospital and a set of scrubs and my white coat that I wear um, that are located outside of the home. And then when I get to the hospital, I'm masked up at all times and then um, I uh, don proper PPE as, as typical that I've, I've been used to doing for years now uh, when I'm evaluating patients. And then after I, I've concluded at the hospital, after a few hours, I come home at night, uh, I'm, I'm again masked. And then when I get home, there's a chamber that we've set up outside of the house in the garage I take off everything and then, and then come into the house and then sort of use hand hygiene and then, and then um, you know, take a shower when I get home before saying hi to anyone and before entering the, the rest of the household. And so we set up that protocol for me to follow, and we certainly considered um, more draconian things like separating um, into, into different households for the time that I would be attending. And we just decided um, and, and made the personal decision that that would be hard, um, and, and that um, I personally trusted in, in the PPE, and as long as I had proper PPE and didn't have to reuse, and had all the, the proper protocols in place um, for me to follow, that we would generally consider ourselves at somewhat lower risk. And so we've stuck to that plan, and we've been doing that now the last couple of months. Um, and at the same time, um, we both opened up uh, our practices to telemedicine visits for, for our clinic work, uh, just to decrease the amount of exposure that we have. I will say that we've isolated ourselves from friends and other family because of the potential risks uh, that we would pose to others. So we've remained, you know, our, our three-person unit in the household with, uh, with our nanny as well helping. And that's, that's been our nucleus. And we haven't, um, uh, for, for personal reasons, uh, haven't wanted to expose other individuals. So we've, we've stayed at home. Wow, that's quite a comprehensive process. Uh, I want to ask about previous diseases uh, such as SARS and MERS, more than one in seven Americans are out of work. And some Americans are uh, trying to understand, you know, why didn't SARS and MERS shut down the economy? How is this different? Why is this shutting down the economy? And is it worth it? Could you help us understand the difference between COVID-19 from the other diseases and perhaps what makes this unique? To contrast a few concepts with SARS and MERS, those were highly fatal illnesses. The MERS mortality rates were up to 30% or more. SARS mortality rates were 10% or greater. And so the epidemiologic concept would be the idea of fatality and how that works inversely to transmissibility. If you have an infection or a communicable disease that's highly fatal, it does not efficiently transmit because it kills the host quite rapidly. That's in contrast to uh, the cold virus, 
which affects millions of Americans, probably hundreds of millions of Americans every single year. It's not particularly fatal. It's only fatal for the most vulnerable, but it, 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 it infects a large uh, swath of the population uh, throughout the respiratory virus season. And it's efficiently transmitted because most people are either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So they still participate in society and recreational activities. They still go to work. They still expose others. And so the transmissibility and the are not, as we've um, heard about that term, is much higher. So with those two illnesses um, being rapidly fatal, the transmissibility was ultimately not that high. And it was actually fairly easy to contain those pandemics for that reason. So in the case of MERS, it was largely um, relegated to the Middle East. In the case of SARS, it went um, in a number of places in Asia, it was largely restricted to healthcare settings, meaning that individuals became rapidly sick and needed to be hospitalized. And sometimes there were hospital outbreaks, but it certainly did not take on a community transmission component that became uh, a large-scale pandemic. And so I would contrast that with this coronavirus, which we know is, is highly transmissible. The r naught is estimated between two and three. We won't know the true r naught until after the pandemic is over and we're able to do virologic and epidemiologic studies on all the data. But we do know that it's fairly transmissible. We also know that it's not, um, it's not as fatal as those other illnesses. It certainly has a concerning fatality rate, anywhere from one to 3% or even higher, which is quite high. That's 10 to 20 times what influenza would have as far as a fatality rate, but it's still not a fatality rate that's high enough that would cause it to burn out in a population rapidly. Instead, for the vast majority of people, they experience mild symptoms or no symptoms, they can still efficiently transmit that virus. There are a few other concepts that are coming to light um, based on anecdotal evidence and some studies that um, will lead to larger scale efforts to understand, but we have certainly seen that this virus probably has extremely high viral loads in the nasopharynx. And there are studies that are ongoing to demonstrate that it probably is higher than SARS, MERS, or some of the other coronaviruses, that many patients have an extremely high viral load in the nasopharynx. And then that is um, a, a vehicle for being able to more efficiently transmit virus, particularly if you're asymptomatic. And it's also potentially shed in other um, uh, specimens, uh, such as stool. There's a lot we're still, we're still learning about the virology of this um, particular virus, but it certainly is unique in some regards, and that has lended itself to being transmissible. I, w I would finally add that the fact that it's novel implies that we have no human immunity to this virus, meaning that we have nearly 100%, if not entirely, 100% susceptible population. That is not seen commonly with most respiratory viruses, which is why um, in, in many of those illnesses, they do not manifest as a severe illness that, with such a high um, fatality rate. So we are still trying to understand why some individuals may not manifest uh, as severe a disease as others. And there's certainly studies that are ongoing to show that there might be receptors on certain cells that certain individuals have and other individuals don't, which is why they get sicker. But that certainly creates a stratification in the U.S. public where certain individuals will be effective spreaders and other individuals will not be. Because this is a highly contagious respiratory disease, we've been told, you know, now everyone should wear a mask. Could you give us a little more color on this? 
even before the CDC recommendation that uh, masking should be commonplace among the general public, it was something that I was advocating because the concept of using a mask, um, we, we classified that concept as largely protecting other individuals from an infected person, that they themselves wearing the mask would be the main beneficiary of that by not transmitting to other individuals. But I knew in my mind that a mask also protects us from inbound exposure. We know that. That's why we wear masks in the hospital. That's why surgeons wear masks when they're doing surgery, not to protect uh, them exposing uh, the, the patient to something they might have, but also an inbound exposure. So we know that, that masks work. Um, I do agree that it's probably more effective um, for the former rather than the latter. But, but when you have something that is highly transmissible, as you mentioned, any protection against inbound transmission is certainly something that's advantageous on a population level. And when you are talking about millions of individuals who will be infected, then even placing a small dent in that transmission by having everyone wear masks when they go out in public uh, will uh, alter the dynamics of the pandemic um, to a huge degree. We've seen that even a few days of distancing have manipulated those curves substantially, and the same uh, is true of masks. So then I started realizing that if individuals are going to start making their own masks, there are certainly best practices and worst practices regarding the construction of those masks that would enable individuals to be adequately protected while at the same time not using materials that are harmful or that are likely to be ineffective or provide a very minuscule amount of protection. And so um, I worked with Huffington Post on a piece to help uh, provide some guidance on best and, and worst practices. And generally, um, it is felt, and this is in line with CDC guidance regarding home masks, that uh, using any type of cloth material is better than nothing, but using filtration materials within uh, those cloths, almost uh, kind, of, kind of sandwiching um, a, a filter material of some kind that's not a harmful filter material probably provides some additional protection. Uh, and I would say that for the general population, that's probably not essential. But for certain individuals who either anticipate a higher risk or a prolonged exposure or individuals who have these underlying conditions that we've heard discussed in, in the news as well, heart conditions, lung conditions, diabetes, these individuals have particular high risks, probably would benefit from the additional protection that a filter would provide. As I researched it, I realized that certainly HEPA filters that are available in home vacuum bags are an adequate material, and there are other materials that could be used at home as well. Uh, but at the same time, there are harmful materials that one could obtain from household supplies, such as fiberglass-related materials and other kinds of HEPA filters that are used in air conditioning units that probably put someone at, at risk of inhaling particles in fiberglass and, and developing more lung problems and probably without providing the, the benefit that we would want. You're in a unique position where this is this is a crossroads of exactly what you've been training for uh, as an infectious disease doctor. Uh, but how about for those specialists who are in other specialties that are deemed non-essential? I know that there's been, you know, hospitals are businesses too, and there's been a financial impact on almost every hospital around the country. How are your peers doing with the redeployment of all resources and all hands on deck COVID-19? I would say that overall, uh, physician morale is low. 
And that is precisely because of some of the reasons that you described, that uh, many physicians who uh, do very important work, but in this time of disaster are not doing work that would uh, add directly to patient management or hospital management, have, have uh, either shut down their practices or scaled back their practices or are only doing essential things. And so many individuals are now at home not doing work, not doing the things that they love, not doing the things they've been trained for uh, for months. And so in addition to that, there, there is an, an inevitable consumption of media and of news. Uh, and, and so watching things unfold on, on TV regarding the lack of PPE, <clears throat> exposure and death of healthcare, healthcare workers, many of whom are our colleagues that we know very well, particularly in, in New York and New Jersey and other places. And those are friends of ours um, who are getting infected and being put at risk. Um, and and uh, also watching uh, what has been, I think, a challenging national response to this pandemic. I would say that the combination of all these things being observed has led to a, a, a fairly low morale in, uh, in uh, physicians and also a, a rattling in our faith in the healthcare system. So there are certain things I think that physicians have been holding on to and certain things that, that uh, health institutions in our area have been doing to help support that effort. And the first, uh, of course, is, is financial. And so Stanford and, and Sutter Health have, um, have agreed to support physicians financially through this downturn, um, even when they are not necessarily working or uh, performing revenue-generating um, procedures. That has come at an enormous, staggering financial loss to the institutions um, of hundreds of millions of dollars that will um, probably not be recoverable. When physicians go back to work, they uh, probably go back to their prior level of high productivity, but it's not something that's a deficit that we can easily make up. And so it'll, it will be a, a large financial hit that institutions will have to recover from, but it's certainly something that they've stepped up recognizing that the alternative, which is having physicians at home not doing their work and potentially um, uh, going into situations that are much more financially challenging for them, particularly new physicians who have a lot of debt uh, and, and, and other financial obligations, uh, the, the institutions have, have, have recognized that. And I would also say that there has now been, after this controlled burn of a couple of months, particularly in our area, um, a, a coping uh, with this illness. And the ways that physicians have found to cope is to recognize that this is a time to be at home that they probably never had um, in, their, in their lifetime, probably, of, of training as physicians. It's a time to reconcile and to be with family and to spend time with others, uh, uh, you know, six feet apart, obviously, uh, but to, to, to spend time um, working on things that they weren't able to work on before, because this is now protected time in a way. And at the same time, there has been a lot of optimism. And I think the physicians have held on to that. There has been a, um, a coming together of the community. There have been collective efforts to collect masks and PPE and donate them to our institutions as well as others. There have been people that have been helping out the elderly. There have been free Zoom uh, phone calls and conferences. Uh, there have been meetings and gatherings and yoga classes and exercise classes and music classes. And so there's been a lot of optimism, I think, uh, among physicians as well regarding this. And that has, I think, been a, a coping strategy that a lot of physicians have, have certainly held to. 
And it's something that uh, we didn't expect in, in our generation, but it's, uh, it's, it's a new thing and it's a new normal. Um, but in the end, um, you know, physicians are certainly used to going through adversity and climbing back out. And, and we will do the same with this as we've done in other scenarios. I think that's an important point for the public to understand because uh, there's some irony there, right? You, you'd think that hospitals of all places are are the ones who are financially stable and doing well, but that's that's not the case, right, for all doctors right now. Uh, looking back on this, there will be those who say, oh, we sounded the alarm too much. This wasn't as bad. This is obviously uh, not taking into account the but for world, right? What would have actually happened if we didn't do this? It would have been millions of lives, not tens of thousands of lives. So, uh, you know, and anything that you want to say, you know, fast forwarding to those who are making that criticism in the future. It always is a trade off. Um, and you could always make the argument that the economic consequences also cost lives and, and also cost um, a, a lot of other things that we will understand a, as we do the analyses moving forward. And so the idea of saving lives directly, uh, but potentially losing other things indirectly or disrupting supply chains and, and having people struggle and not having enough food, these certainly are the things that we need to contend with. And I, I certainly welcome the opportunity per, to participate in those conversations to understand what the other perspectives are uh, and, and what the disruptions really were and what, what those impacts are um, uh, so that we can make informed decisions in the future. It's certainly one perspective, the perspective of the physicians, the epidemiologists and the public health folks that lives first and then we deal with the consequences later. Um, but I will say that in this case, given the type of illness that we were dealing with, and again, all the experts agree that the unique properties of this illness were its transmissibility, its fatality rate, which was right in that sweet spot where you don't kill so many hosts that you burn out, but you kill enough people to be able to potentially kill millions. Um, it, was, it was right in that niche where we worry the most about these kinds of illnesses, as well as what we've learned from prior pandemics. It was the right response. And um, I, I certainly would be happy to entertain those kinds of conversations. But at the same time, we need to be able to weigh all of those factors with every pandemic. We need to be able to make those decisions, though, very rapidly. And so in many ways, I would say that the response here um, probably overall um, nationally was not early enough. And certainly we can alter dynamics of epidemics in many other ways, not just distancing and not such harsh measures. And I think that there are many lessons that came out of this pandemic in particular that help us alter trajectory in other ways that are, are probably less costly and, and help us arrive at more reasonable and well-informed decisions in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And please, um, you know, I, I welcome the MIT community to reach out to me at any time for any reason. I'm happy to help. Thank you so much for tuning in to MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Fisher-Huang. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sudeb Delai, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like the show, please share widely with friends and family, or even leave us a review. On our next episode, we're excited to return to the theme of entrepreneurship with Third Love founder Heidi Zach. Stay tuned for that episode and others where we'll continue hearing about the experiences of MIT alumni during the age of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here at MIT Catalysts, we hope you're staying safe, staying informed, and taking care of yourself. Until next time.